right. Back. We're back. Post post New Year's. This is, a, this is your first episode after New Year's. It is our first 2024 episode. And pretty awesome. So last year was great. Uh, really excellent. We have a lot of things that are uh, happening right now uh, that's going to occur this year. One of them is the CPR report. Second annual. <laughs> Second annual CPR report. Yeah, it's going to be coming out pretty soon here now. Yep. Uh, and so for those who are listening to this who aren't familiar with the CPR report, that's our annual cyber priorities report that we publish annually. Yeah, focus on the SLED community, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as Justin and I were talking to various organizations we're trying to help out, we found out that there's not a lot of attention given to the folks who protect everything from the way we drive to the way we vote, right, to the way we study. And um, we had the idea that gathering information from the many clients we have and folks we know, we could actually help to influence this community with the good ideas from other people in the community. Yep. And uh, first annual went over really, really well. And uh, Justin and I, you know, we're very fortunate in looking around, figuring out how to do the next one. Uh, we want to bring in somebody from the industry itself. And so we brought in Kurt Wood, who's the former CIO uh, in, on the executive committee for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, to be the executive director of it. And he's done a hell of a job, a bang up job in generating the topics that a lot of folks like him are thinking about. Yeah, but uh, who better to actually do that and be an executive oh, sponsor of it? He's been doing this for however many years he's been doing it, and it's it's more than I got fingers in my toes. He's mm-hmm. got a lot of a lot of experience, but uh, he brings a sense of practicality and like realism to the report, right? And it's not like it's not these like grandiose ideas that no one can ever implement. I mean, it's kind of been interesting to hear his perspectives and be like, ah. Actually, that's not really the way the real world works. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. That's a great point because he takes it from theoretical to actually what's real. And he understands a lot of the challenges that don't, don't necessarily organically appear to me. Right? I'm like, oh, it should work this way. He's like, yeah, well, maybe it should, but it don't, <laughs> right? So, no, I think you're absolutely right. No yeah. better person. Yeah, cool. So do you want to, you want to talk about the CPR a little bit? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the CPR. I took a little time. I put together some of the contents that we know are coming out because we've had the opportunity to review some of this as we've gone through the data from our clients and from the market as a whole. I thought it might be fun just to talk a little bit about the different sections that they could yeah. be going on inside the CPR. We won't go into a lot of detail because it's not done yet, but I think these are some interesting topics that were brought to us by, by the industry. So the first was this concept, and I give Kurt all the credit in the world for, for this one. Uh, we had originally put out the SLED CPR last year. And I think that accidentally, you know, we had made it look like everybody in SLED's the same, right? But SLED's sort of a convenient term for vendors to use and for analysts to use, state, local, higher ed. And, and one of the things Kurt said was like, you realize they're not the same, right? And so as we talked through it, and there's a note at the front of the SLED report about how different they can be. Number one, how different SLED if, as a group is different than everybody else. But then within SLED, how they have so many similar challenges, but they're different. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, their their needs. Uh, I think their needs are generally same, but their their outcomes are are like very very different than what they're hoping to achieve, right? And so, well, they might have similar issues like how you tackle them, solve them, what solutions are available, funding budgets available is totally different. Yeah, that's that's a great point. The the whole budgeting thing, and for those of you who aren't you know familiar with that marketplace. Just think about it from your own life, right? You've got, say, state government, right? We know how that gets funded. We all see it, you know, on an, on an annualized basis. 
And then you think about how are colleges funded, universities funded. And then you think about, well, for your, your city or for a county, how does that get funded? And they're all so different. And maybe not the how do I sign a check is so different, but the how do I understand who the right stakeholders are and the right supporters are to actually make that go through. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what, what we reflected on a lot as we're thinking through this issue of the CPR is how does that change the way people think about some of the, some of the programs that they're going to implement? Yeah. Well, I mean, the mo- like hearing you say that, the most um, interesting parallel that I draw is like we take counties as an example, right? Mm-hmm. They'd, fund our, they'd fall under the local, the local government vertical. Um, counties in the Northeast where we are serve a very different purpose than those in the West. Mm-hmm. So we, even geographically speaking, the same uh, kind, like demographic um, could have two very different needs depending on where they are regionally. Yeah. You know? So it's like, it's just like another wrinkle of saying like, th- these actually are fairly unique institutions here. I, I think it's a, a great learning process for us, right? And understanding how different they are in, in a nuanced way, you know, how we help them all a little bit differently. What I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to the first one because it's really close, right? Yeah. In terms of the discussion. One of the big themes we had heard coming out of 2022 into 2023 um, was whole estate, right? We had a couple of secretaries of state who we know well who, who were talking to us about they felt they could do more, right? They felt that because they had centralized infrastructure and they had actually invested in building it out, that they had the capacity to help um, tribal authorities, local governments do better, right, and, and do, do it better. And then we saw with the um, SLCGP, right, the President's State and Local Cybersecurity Grant Program, that was actually written to make that happen. Right, which was here's a, here's a bunch of money, eighty percent of it though has got to go to locals and the tribals and state. You can have twenty percent, but you know use your smarts, come together, all the gang of you make a plan. And I thought that was super. So I know one of the things that's talked a lot about is the trends we've seen in people adopting whole estate. It's a very natural intersection that I think we've seen kind of unfold. Um, and when I just kind of go back to the basics of it, is saying if you are a state security executive. Your, your charge is the security posture of the state and maybe even broader than that, like of your entire state. Like you are the guy or the gal. And if something happens um, and the news needs to find someone to talk to, they're probably coming <laughs> to your doorstep first, right? Which also means like if something happens at municipal level, local government, or even higher ed, say, hey, someone in the state can – we find someone to talk to gets who that person's likely right going to be, right? So um, I think what a lot of state security leaders have come to realize is that, especially for some of them, is, um, you know, even when you have, like, a municipality, like, get a cold, right, or they're having some issues, like, you've got a full-blown fever because all of this is just coming straight to your doorstep. Right on. So there's a little incentive there to come up with, creative solutions at a state level that benefit everybody else, right? On the vein of trying to be proactive. I think that even stretches all the way down to higher ed mm-hmm. as well. Not say it's all the way down, but in a related related industry. Right? Yeah, I thought it was super interesting as we were having the conversations with Kurt and with some of the folks he connected us with, that some of the friction in whole estate was completely unexpected by me. And it's not, it's, it's not because I should have expected, I guess. I never thought about it. But like within a state, 
you may have areas which are remarkably conservative with their money or the political views, what have you, and you may have a state which is at the opposite end of the spectrum. And what whole of state like sort of needs is for everybody to go, all right, I'm going to allow my cybersecurity to be controlled by X, right, meaning the state. So I'm this iconoclastic little group over here. I'm going to you know, absolve myself of responsibility, hand it off to people who I don't really agree with on anything. And on the other hand, if you're the state, you're like, and I'm going to provide services for these folks who don't believe what I believe, and they're probably going to do something wrong, and they could actually paint me with that brush you just described yeah. if something bad happens. And so it's a re for me at least, it's really been an interesting experience, and the reporting will be in the CPR, about some of the ways that you know these intelligent leaders can get around some of those discussions by the value proposition you just described. Yeah. Well, I think, um, and we, we've talked about this before, but the role of the security executive um, has evolved mm. over the last however many years. And there was a point in time where the security executive was uh, kind of a, a proxy for being the most technical person, the most aware person of cybersecurity on the staff. To be like, you're the senior person, so therefore you must be the CISO. Like, congratulations. <laughs> um, but I think what we've seen over time is saying like that role is now evolved. And it's much more of a political one. And that's whether you're in public sector or you're in private sector. Like, the role is the same. And your job is essentially to evangelize cyber and get people to self-select participation in cyber, even though when it's on their direct benefit to do so, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you're kind of doing these things for, like, the broader good. Um, and, like, that that's your job. And when I think about a state CISO as an example, like, their job is the same. Like, you're basically kind of... Um, you're going to kind of going out campaigning. You're talking about values. You're talking about like goals and like a better security posture. Like you're basically run out there running your own election to right get people to come on board. And that's like, uh, I don't see many security leaders um, who really love to do that stuff and who are also good at it. But um, the ones that we see that are a little bit strong in that space, to so feel a little bit more comfortable there. Those are the ones that are making strides in the whole estate faster for, for, for all the obvious reasons because they're able to build consensus. Yeah, I think it's great. And, and I know that some of those folks are actually in the report. I know that the team took the time to talk with someone so there's some of that direct feedback. Yeah. And I think it's great because that discussion of how that role has changed and how the skills that are required for it have changed, it feeds right into the next topic we spent a lot of time talking about, right? Yep. Which was how do you recruit the folks for it? How do you recruit and retain cybersecurity talent into the sled types of organizations. And I thought that was super enlightening because there's such different views of it, right? From the, the way in which you attract people in the first place to get there to how do you offer them the style of opportunities where maybe the money isn't that big or maybe the breadth of technologies aren't that big. How do you keep them excited? And I think a lot of that's really interesting. And as somebody who's put together hundreds of people working in this company, you know, you've run over the same things, but in a very, very different world. You know, I think at the end of the day, like when I like take it, when I distill it down to like what what are some of like the least common denominators here, it's um, it's an understanding that people who are in cyber are naturally intellectually curious, like curious folks, mm -hmm. um, and you have to find a way to like continually like, scratch that itch yeah. for people. And sometimes it's tools, sometimes it's new opportunities, sometimes it's just new challenges, right? Like we have to get this project done, right? And putting people in uh, a position to get new and different experiences are all things that play into like retaining people. 
Definitely. I'm going to give you credit for something else, though, and it's something that came up in the course of the report from some of these other leaders, right, which was sometimes it's the mission, right? And I've seen you do it here, right? And for, for the folks who, who are subscribed, who are part of the company, they know this, right? But a lot of what engages people to come to a company like this and stay at a company like this is the mission, that you're protecting those who can't protect themselves or that need help protecting themselves, and you're just trying to make a difference. And I know that in some of the interviews with some of the leaders, they were saying sort of the same thing, right? I mean, these, like I said at the top of the show, these are the organizations that protect our right to vote, right? That protect social services that people really, really need. And so I think that some of that same mission thing that, that you bring into this place is very much some of the reasons they can drag people, you know, out of the private sector into the public sector, where then you can do all those great things you just talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you have to have a purpose. Yeah. And so I, I think that hits at the heart of it. All right. So we've talked a bit about the people. We've talked about what's going on and some of the ways to implement. One of the topics was sort of separate from it. And this is something that you and I heard a lot. And I know you're a lot more familiar, so I'm going to pass the ball to you pretty good on this one. I can tell <laughs> you that coming here uh, probably two years ago, um, I'd been here for a little while, talking to some of our, our state um, clients and learning that for some organizations, they're, they're self-insuring, right? So we're talking about cyber insurance. And I know we've done a couple of shows. Uh, we talked about Mario uh, Greco's remarks about Zurich getting out of the business entirely. We've talked about potentially restructuring cyber insurance. But the rubber sort of hits the road for a state, local, higher ed. How do they insure themselves with these massively exposed infrastructures and limited budget? to figure out how they do it, how they protect millions and millions of people. I thought that was a really interesting take on cyber insurance as a whole. Cyber insurance is an interesting opportunity to transfer risk. Mm. But I'm not sure it's totally real. And so, like, going back in time a little bit, when I was uh, the chief information security officer of the company that I worked for at the time, um, I, was, I would negotiate our cyber insurance. And there's, like, there's a lot of... I'm using air quotes with my <laughs> fingers. Um, there's a lot of factors that come into play in how these things get quoted. And every year I got the same promise. It's like, if you do these things, you'll see a reduction in premiums. Um, so we did those things every single year. And guess what? Premiums never went down, ever. And we would even do things like um, uh, we would send documentation to mm -hmm. the insurance company to prove that, like, you know, we're not going to need as much support in this area. And for me, it was, it was incident response. Like, I have to be able to control this. Um, and basically where we were, like, we actually had some needs to do it. So it's like, hey, we're going to – I'm going to build a lot of muscle here. I'd like you to give me credit mm -hmm. on, on the insurance because I'm not going to use that much of, the, of, of our policy, right? It's just not a benefit I'm going to take advantage of. So, like, you can reduce the cost of it knowing I'm not going to use it as much. Um, and it never, never happened. Right. And so over time, um, what I've, what I've liked to believe, the story I've liked to tell myself is that you can transfer specific pieces of risk, right? So if you're good at identity and access management or you're good at IR, um, but maybe you're not good at, um, I don't know, uh, you're not good at threat intel, mm -hmm. whatever it is, but like pick, pick whatever it is. Um, I want to transfer that specific risk to my underwriter and like let them where because I don't have budget to take care of this, therefore I'm just going to transfer the risk. Um, that's I don't know how many years I've been doing this that I've never ever seen that happen, right? But it seems like a great idea, mm -hmm. and as I've 
over the years I get more and more familiar with the insurance industry is like I just don't I just don't think they're there quite yet. Will they get there? Yeah, probably they'll get there, but uh, I just hope to see it in my lifetime. Got it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think that one of the challenges, one of the things that that I know we learned about in doing some of the research is that that idea that they don't have enough data yet to know it really makes a difference, right? Is is having a firewall, is doing a great job, is having MFA in place, is having zero trust in place, doesn't make any difference about whether you're going to get breached or not, or if there's a breach, what's the impact? I don't think we, they have enough statistical data yet, and Lord knows insurers love actuarial tables. Yeah. Right, and they may just not, they may just still be in that information gathering phase so they can understand which of that more nuanced approach, which one of those elements should materially affect what the, what the premium rate is. Yeah, I mean, the... While you're talking about it, I'm just thinking yeah. of the, the analogy of, like, if you're trying to insure a driver, right? And you're saying, okay, we have we have two two drivers that we're comparing. Uh, the first one is a female who is seen through, um, through te- telematics from the car. Mm-hmm. We know that she drives, you know, 150 miles an hour down the interstate. She brakes really hard is based on the telemetry from the steering wheel. She's, like turning really aggressively. Um, she's a walking miracle. She's still alive. You know, the other one and like, take like me or you and saying, okay, drive the speed limit, uh, stop at all the stop signs, never brake too hard. All the braking is always very gentle. Um, but how do you compare the two? Right. And say, Oh, well the first one's Danica Patrick, mm. right. She's a professional driver, right. And she can drive 150 miles an hour very, very safely, you know, and has never had an accident. Right. Conversely, like there's someone like me or you or like my grandmother mm-hmm. who or my grandmother hits people all the time. <laughs> right. And and she's driving like a fraction of the speed of Danica. Yep. Um, but I, I think in the cyberspace, like we're still trying to do like those comparisons and we're just we're just not there yet. Yeah. I, I think that's that's super helpful. And, and I think that 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 style of understanding and that depth of understanding is something people find, you know, as we're talking the CPR. All right. Um, the last one I want to talk about is another place we've spent a lot of time, which is in talking to these organizations about where they gather and how they filter and what they think about threat intel. And I know in last year's CPR, we spent a fair amount of time talking about it, talking about actors and just talking about threat. Um, what have you seen change in the last 12 months, right, as we start thinking about talking with them about threat intelligence, most specifically from sort of the requests we get from people? Like, what are they looking for? Well, they asks have changed i think the industry is slow to catch up Hmm. relative right um you know i think the theme of the if if i had to frame the theme of the ask that we were seeing more of is um people want to know what's coming around the corner right and that could be from the dark web it could be from maybe something coming from social media um, basically everything that would kind of fit in the traditional brand intel box, right, um, is you want to know everything that's going to impact your reputation or the business that you work for, right? And however that manifests itself, that's what you want to be aware of. Um, is the traditional form of threat intel hasn't always been that. In fact, I would say it hasn't been that. And any threat intel you do receive, for the most part, is at least going to be aged three to four days. And by that time, and we all know, it doesn't take that long to run a truck through someone's 
business or mm-hmm. organization of saying, by the time you get the intel, it's three days late, damage is already done, and you're wiped off the map. So it hasn't been super timely either. So anyway, I think there's um, there's a call across the industry to like to be better, you know, and and we can be and we should be better. I thought you did an interesting thing. It's reflected in some of the comments we got in this part of the interview process in the report, which was you'd mentioned the social media and re- sort of reputational analysis, right? Because we got a couple of calls from statewide officers who were saying, we're kind of concerned because, you know, the press reports this or constituents are asking about that. And, and you had mentioned, you know, that some of the precursors, that super fresh intelligence that's really helpful, comes out of those venues, like those, I'm going to say, fairly non-traditional real-time venues like social media. Like, it happens. I got to know right now. I can't wait the four days. You know, I look at our political landscape, right? And it's, um, it's fairly polarized. And the idea of things that are fake news is, like, that's a very real thing. And if I just kind of take that parallel and bring it over to cyber, is like, there's things that are true. There's things that are not true. Um, but if someone latches onto something that's not true and they start to catastrophize it and make a story out of it, you still have to know it's not true so you can, like, dispute it. And the worst thing you can do is just, like, let those things go because that's when, like, brush fires start. Sure. They get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, then it's a full-blown forest fire, and then you have a whole PR public relations fiasco that you have to manage, and it takes even more time than it would have, would have taken if you just addressed it in the first place and just spent five minutes addressing it. And so I think it's important to say, like, whether it's real or fake, like, you got to know both. I want to do the call out right now to FIMLAID, right? Because what you just described was the new and pressing need for non-threat intelligence, right? Mm. That capacity in understanding a world where it's so easy to generate false information, that that capacity to know what's not a threat may in fact, especially during the election cycle, be even more important. So I'm going to call out for maybe the 24-25 CPR, but that you heard it here first, right? FIMLAID says threat intelligence is expanding because now we have to be able to help people understand what's not a threat because they're going to get hammered by that information flow exactly the same way. Um, the, the non-threat intel. Right on, man. 100%. But I, I think it's great. I think people, um, it's, it's, it's got to be part of it. And, you know, when you were talking, I thought about um, there's one client who approached us was earlier in 23. It was like, hey, I just got this email from someone saying, like, they have all of our information ransom and they've exfilled everything. And um, and it was, like, some threat. Like, you have to pay us this. And, like, t- t- typical ransomware optics, right? Um, but when you look at the actual note, I'm like, okay, like, what they said they actually did, they couldn't actually have possibly done it. And they're talking about information that you never had in the first place. So anyway, like long story short, after some investigation realized, I'm like, oh, these people are just making this shit up, mm. <laughs> you know, and for, for all the reasons that they do it. But um, in that same vein, it's like, okay, that's not a threat, but, but you, you do need to like kind of address it, right? And here's your talk track. Love it. All right. So we've gone on pretty long. The report's coming out. Everybody will get a chance to read it in its, in its length and depth. But uh, I just thought it would be fun to talk about. I love the topics. Yep. Awesome. So we're good on this one? We're good. All right. Uh, if you are listening to this now, um, CPR report is uh, imminent um, or it has already come out. We will post it in the show notes mm-hmm. um, when it's ready. So we'll post it to this episode. Um, and if you like this episode, please share it with your friends, neighbors, colleagues. 
Um, and we'll get you on the next episode.